The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Erin Jordan. She's an investigative multimedia journalist at the Gazette based in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She holds a degree in communications and journalism from Iowa State University. I was referred to Ms. Jordan because I wanted to know more about how the recent Midwestern flooding impacted water quality in the state, especially because Iowa ranks number one in hog production, and most of those hogs are raised in confinement facilities with pools of waste that can leak into our rivers and streams with flooding. So welcome, Ms. Jordan. Thank you for being with me today. Great. Thank you so much, Melinda. Well, you have been having a series of articles about hog confinement facilities in the press, and your stories are fabulous. For example, one of them says, large number of CAFOs in western Iowa increases nitrate in streams. Another one has to do with overflowing manure tanks reported in western Iowa, eastern Iowa on alert. You've lived through some major storms lately. What made you seek out stories about water quality in relation to the storms? Well, I had, you know, just in different circles that I am in, email, uh, Twitter, things like that, someone had mentioned there are all these photos of the western Iowa, eastern Nebraska, Missouri flooding, where you see these agricultural buildings just kind of peeking out amid this huge, as our Iowa governor called it, it looks like an ocean. Yeah. And and you think, well, there are manure tanks somewhere around here, so what's going on? And then also just thinking about after Hurricane Florence went through North Carolina, there were a lot of public health concerns. That's also a pork-producing state, and there's that issue plus other chemical caches, things like that. So I wanted to check in with the Iowa DNR about the condition in western Iowa. Mm-hmm. And what did you find out? Well, when I asked them for reports of manure discharges from animal confinement operations, I asked through March 1st through March 21st. And at that point, there were eight reported incidents. And these were cases where the narrative description would say manure storage is overflowing or the lagoon is just starting to run over on the south side. And then since then, I did file a follow-up request. So we're looking at March 1st. April 11th, if I've got that date right, yeah, there have been 10 of these incidents, so two more since March 21st. Wow. So is DNR measuring fecal contamination in some of the rivers and creeks in the areas where there's been spillage? Well, anytime there's a reported spill, they really do, that's kind of something that triggers evaluation. They are looking for fish kill situations. They're particularly on alert for areas that might be feeding a drinking water intake. But, you know, with all this flooding, there's all sorts of chemicals, you know, washing places they shouldn't go. So it is a, not a good time for the water to be checking, to trying to isolate 
any one thing, but I, I know that they are really rushing around to try to keep things safe as they can in western Iowa with that water situation. So are they measuring nitrates? Are they measuring agricultural, like commercial fertilizers? Are they measuring E. coli, salmonella, organisms that we might expect to see in some of this manure waste? Well, Iowa is lucky in that we have a sensor network on at various points all across the state. I think we have something like 60 to 70 sensor points where they are gathering data on nitrate, phosphorus, in some cases, other things like dissolved oxygen. They may be looking at uh, turbidity, the cloudiness of the water. But lots of times those sensors are kind of turned off over the winter and they're turned back on in the spring through the summer months and into the fall because you've got the frozen rivers that don't really allow you to do that sensing. So we've got a very good way to monitor that, but I don't know whether those were in place and turned on before this flood event. Hmm. Well, I was doing some research about Iowa, and I learned that actually Iowa is number one and according to Iowa Pork Facts, it says that at any one time, there are approximately 20 million pigs being raised in Iowa, and that Iowa producers market approximately 50 million hogs a year, where nearly one-third of the nation's hogs are raised in Iowa. And actually, I learned that most of those hogs are exported. So we're talking about major production and issues related to that many animals in one area, there are more hogs there than people, aren't there? Seven times more. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's pretty startling when you think about it that way. One of the big problems that we've reported on is just the high density of some of these animal confinements in certain parts of the state. Northwest Iowa and spreading into South Dakota has really, really high-density areas we did kind of an interactive map on, with one of our stories. And when you look at Northwest Iowa, it just looks like a beehive. They're, the dots are so close together. And so one of the challenges when you've got all the manure from these hogs is you have to find a cost-effective way to get rid of it. And the way that's been used is to, to spread it basically or to spray it onto farm fields as a fertilizer. And that can be a very good fertilizer for corn and soybeans, but you have to be able to do it in a fairly close area to your animal confinement in order for it to be cost-effective. Well, if you've got such a high density of these animal confinements, you may not have a close-by place to spread that manure. So in some cases, people may be applying manure at too high of rates because they just want to get rid of it in a closer place. Right. So, and that is correlating with the higher levels of the nitrate and phosphorus that they've seen in the streams in western Iowa. So does the Department of Agriculture or the Department of Natural Resources, do they say you can't apply anymore, we're at saturation rates now, and if you apply anymore, it will contaminate our groundwater? Is there anybody monitoring that and saying, nope, you can't spray, and then what do you do with all the waste? Yeah. Well, animal confinements of a certain size, before they open, they have to complete a manure management plan, which says where they're going to apply their manure, which fields. And in some ways, it's very technical. Like, they have to take soil samples of the fields where they want to apply it, 
and look at the phosphorus levels and is the soil such that it can take this extra phosphorus, this extra manure. So they have to file these plans with the state. But if a really cool study that I reported on in January by the University of Iowa, it talks about how they basically they looked at the number of hogs in some of these watersheds. And then they looked at the commercial fertilizer sales figures for those counties. And by adding those figures up based on how much manure a hog generates, they were finding that some areas were applying more than double the recommended rate of nitrate on some of these fields. Mm. So it is being watched in some ways, but not in others. Wow. And just to give our listeners an idea of how much waste we're talking about, so I have some data here. You can correct me if you've got better data, but it was a study by Dr. Mark Sabzi, a professor at the University of North Carolina's School of Public Health. He reported that a hog produces 10 times the fecal waste of a human. I've seen it anywhere from three to four times to up to 10 times. I don't know which is correct. Yeah, I don't know either. I'm sure there is a formula there, but I mean, just given how big these hogs are when they're at their full size, that doesn't surprise me at all. Right. And when you start thinking about the numbers of them, plus the fecal material, then add in these climate-related incidents, I don't think the situation is going to get better. Is there a plan in place to maybe restructure some of this confined animal feeding kind of agriculture? Or in light of what we can expect moving forward, I don't think that the climate incidents are going to be less, in other words. Right. Well, one thing that came up in my reporting that I did just after this recent flood event is one of the things that exacerbated the problem is that Iowa and a lot of the Midwest had an early cold spell in November, which made it hard for farmers to apply some of that manure in the fall. So so they basically then are storing the manure in their tanks for the whole winter instead of being able to apply some of that in the fall. So the storage tanks were maybe extra full when this bomb cyclone struck the Midwest. So as part of that, I did ask the DNR, I said, is there any move afoot to maybe require these facilities to have larger storage tanks, just given that the weather is increasingly unpredictable and you could have the early freeze and and then you do need to make sure that you have enough room for that. And he said, no, there's really nothing underway for that. So I don't know. I'm sure there's other things people are talking about, but that was just one thing that was notable to me. Right. Well, I know that you report on many topics, being that you are the multimedia investigative journalist at the paper. And so you've got to balance the stories that you're doing about the environment and the hog industry and other topics that come up. Do you feel like if you had time to investigate a story related to this issue, how much time in an ideal world would you like to have to do it? Well, it's interesting you say that. I have a kind of a special circumstance this year. I am doing a reporting fellowship through Marquette University in Milwaukee, and it's a year-long fellowship where I'm spending about 80% of my time on water quality stories. So I've really had a tremendous luxury this year. If I have a story, a good water quality story, I'm able to spend really as much time as I need I worked with three Marquette students to produce a pretty large package in early December where we looked at the progress or lack of progress 
that 12 Midwestern states had made in, in terms of trying to reduce the nitrate and phosphorus washing into the Mississippi River. And we had, of course, you get to your deadline and everything feels rushed, but we did have plenty of time. But I will say that on, in a regular year when I don't have a reporting fellowship like this, you do have to fit these stories in around other assignments. Iowa's uh, first in the nation caucus state, and we have presidential candidates coming here a lot. We've got regular features we're required to write. There's other news stories that pop up. So then you have to fit these investigations in among your other assignments. Exactly. And if I look out at what's been happening with news media outlets, it seems that the staff is shrinking and that just like we see in agriculture, we see a consolidation in media. And I wonder, what are your thoughts about that in terms of the health of our democracy? I think reporters are really critical. And I'm just testing the waters, if you will, with regard to how you feel about the importance of doing these this kind of investigative work and what the picture is nationally with regard to news media. Yeah, that's it is a very the environment for newspapers is changing daily. The newspaper that I work for, the Gazette based in Cedar Rapids, is actually kind of unique. It's an employee-owned newspaper. We have a few other small newspapers with us, but we're not owned by a big chain. And in some ways, that's great. You don't have someone, you know, in Virginia or, you know, New York dictating what's going to happen. But there's also challenges, too. You're kind of trying to do everything yourself. But the Gazette has made a great commitment to solid reporting. We have a a good-sized reporting staff and photography staff for our size. But even in that, our newspaper subscribers, God bless them, are getting older, and they're not always going to be getting the paper on their doorstep. And we're having to face the idea of how do you transition to making money from your writing through digital channels. And that's, uh, you know, it's new and different. And so far, it hasn't been as, as lucrative as the print product. So we are faced with that as well. And, you know, I have colleagues who work for some of the larger chain newspapers, and they do amazing work, but they just have to do more and more of it. You know, it's real high pressure environment to always be delivering that but not have as much time to do it. So I feel like there's still a lot of great journalism going on in the world. And it's, as you say, it's more important than ever. I think about the environmental realm. It was just announced last week that there's some consideration to let pork producers monitor themselves to some degree, which would make less regulation required for like Iowa Department of Natural Resources or the USDA. And I think that that concerns a lot of people. And, you know, newspapers, we're not inspectors, we don't work for the government, but we do help just provide some degree of watchdog reporting on some of these organizations. Exactly. That is the beauty of the media. That's why we need you so badly. I need to take one break and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Erin Jordan. She is an investigative multimedia journalist at the Gazette based in Cedar Rapids. And I discovered some of her excellent stories about what has happened to Iowa water quality following the horrific storms and related flooding as they relate to the hog confinement pools of manure and what's happening to our streams and drinking water. So the reason why I'm so interested in water quality and why I think work like yours is so important and why I'm thrilled to know that 80% of your stories are going to be on water quality 
is because water is our most important nutrient. And I think that we have been so lucky to have been able to take it for granted. We turn on the tap, we get clean water, we don't have to think about it. But what I'm discovering is that we are having to think about it more and more. A lot of our communities, I know my own included, are dealing with aging infrastructure. So you put this aging infrastructure mixed in with the fact that we're having more climate catastrophes, and we see a real disaster waiting in the wings with regard to public health. How much does the Department of Health weigh into these water stories? Do you work with them as much as you do DNR and the Department of Agriculture? You know, I don't. I think a lot of the regulatory stuff, you know, in terms of manure disposal and fertilizer application do come through a lot through the DNR or the Department of Agriculture. But as you mentioned, there have been some some kind of scary situations in terms of drinking water. In Lake Erie, there was a situation a few years ago where the city of Toledo had to, they couldn't drink their water for a certain period of time because these large algal blooms in the lake were affecting the intake for the city's water treatment plant. Some of the reporting I'm doing right now is is in Ohio, and there's a, a lake there, Grand Lake St. Mary's, that has faced some challenges in terms of recreation and drinking water. It's really happening all over the place. We visited Mankato, Minnesota, where they are having to spend about $2 million to dig a new well into the deep aquifer because the rivers that go through there had such high level of nitrates, they need to get more water from the aquifer so they can mix it with the river water to keep it within safe nitrate levels. Wow. When you try to get information to report on these stories, do you ever have to file freedom of information requests? I do, yes. I file those pretty regularly, not just on this topic, but others as well. Well, I have found that some of the best stories come out of those FOIA requests, is what they're called now. And I'm wondering, do you have to pay a lot of money for those investigations? I asked this because I know someone who told me that they had to pay thousands of dollars to get information that really should have been very easy to get. And I wonder if by making reporters and media outlets pay so much that it becomes a deterrent to getting to the truth. Yeah, we just earlier in March, it was Sunshine Week, which is a week that news outlets often focus on access to information. And we reported a little bit on the cost of public records. You know, the Gazette has been quoted some crazy cost estimates for information requests in the thousands to, in some cases, I think even like tens of thousands of dollars. And there's no way that we could pay that. And we have greater resources maybe than a lot of other small town or college newspapers. And so usually when we get a number that we think is too high, we really try to, our law in Iowa requires that the agency itemize what all goes into that cost. And agencies are not allowed to charge more than the hourly rate that it actually takes to put together the information. So if an agency is just trying to scare us off with a high number, we usually can kind of work through that by showing that we know what the law allows and doesn't allow, or we can perhaps adjust our request slightly to maybe make it a narrow period of time we're looking at or something like that. But my colleagues here, we've gotten pretty good at 
working, kind of negotiating those requests because we don't want to be deterred by a high number. So we will work around those as often as we can. Right. And I think that it's so critical for people to understand what some of the barriers are to getting to the truth and reporting. There's been such a, I don't know, a a sentiment being out there now about how reporters aren't trustworthy or they're just making up lies. And I want people to understand just how critical people like you are in digging through the truth, getting to find out what the facts are to better our democracy. So I have high praise for the media, and I know how difficult it must be to write stories with less time to do it. And yet the stories are actually more complicated today than ever. Yeah, there are a lot of very complex stories. One of my colleagues, Vanessa Miller, has done a great series over time looking at how the children's hospital at the University of Iowa was funded and some cost overruns and lawsuits with contractors. And I mean, talk about technical, going through these contracts for construction over time and change orders. And you do have to become an expert on these topics as you jump in. So there's just a lot of tremendous journalism going on out there where people do dive into these sorts of things. Yeah. Well, I want to look at a story that you did. The Iowa Commission won't set limits on lake pollution. Right. I thought that was amazing. Why wouldn't we want to protect lakes where children go and play? What was that about? Yeah. About 10 years ago, the state formed a committee where they discussed whether there should be these limits on lakes. So basically, it's kind of like a speed limit. It says, if we reach this level of nitrate and phosphorus in these certain lakes that are prime recreational areas or else they're a source of drinking water, that's when it might trigger a corrective action plan where we'd have to kind of shape up what's happening around that lake. So this committee came together, scientists and others came together and decided what would be, they recommended some permit levels for these lakes. And then they just sat there and the Department of Natural Resources didn't accept that, didn't make a rule that would put these into place. So environmental groups a couple times since then have filed a petition for rulemaking. They have asked the Department of Natural Resources to do that. The most recent time was last year and the state's Environmental Protection Commission. Well, let me back up a minute. So even though the DNR put this committee in place 10 years ago and these recommendations have been out there, the DNR this year actually recommended against establishing this rule. So this new recommendation goes against the one from 10 years ago. So the state's Environmental Protection Commission went along with the experts within the DNR and said, no, we will not set these permit limits. And, you know, every state involved in this 12-state compact regarding the Mississippi River had been asked to come up with these nutrient levels, and most states haven't. A couple of states have done it for maybe one nutrient, but most states have not. Hmm. Well, I want to put the ball in your court and ask you to just tell our listeners what some of the most interesting, surprising reporting you've discovered in following water quality issues, what do you want our listeners to know? Well, the package that we produced in December that I did with the Marquette students, really, we found that the the 12 states that have been trying to reduce by 45% the nitrate and phosphorus going into the Mississippi River, 
they've been working on it for more than 10 years, and there's really been no progress in any of the states. I think Illinois has shown some progress on nitrate, but not phosphorus. And really, that's it. And so much money has gone into this, so much time. There's meetings once or twice a year from the Gulf Hypoxia Task Force, Mm. and it's just not really changing. Part of it is that everything is still voluntary in most states, where there's a lot of things recommended in terms of what they'd like farmers to do, growing cover crops, watching their nitrate application, using no-till agriculture, but nothing is required. It's all voluntary. Some states have started to do a little bit. Minnesota last year implemented a required buffer around streams and lakes and drainage ditches that you can't farm all the way up to the water. So it'll be interesting to see over time whether that pushes the needle a little bit in Minnesota. They had to do that under a Democratic governor and In a lot of the other states, it just hasn't been happening. So I will be very curious to see how that works in Minnesota. Minnesota also has a new groundwater protection rule that will go into effect later this year that has some restrictions on the amount of nitrate that can be applied to the ground. And so I think Minnesota could set an example for some of the other states. So I will continue to watch them and continue to report on how the other states are doing. Mm -hmm. Nothing could be more important. And I don't know if people realize, when I learned this, I was amazed that the Mississippi River watershed is the fourth largest in the world. And what happens in upstate communities, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, all the way down to the Gulf, influences those fishing communities in the Gulf of Mexico. So if somehow if we could make incentives based on protecting the environment, it would be so much better for all of us living in this wonderful watershed. It's true. And, you know, there really are a lot of incentives already in place. Farmers get uh, cost share money. They can either be part of the federal or state cost share program to, like, grow cover crops. So they may have the bulk of their cost for seed for cover crops over the winter covered by the government. There's a lot of money available for different conservation projects. You know, here in Iowa, Iowa got a large federal grant to be working on some of these things, and they were paying 75% of the cost if, like, a farmer wanted to put in a wetland or a pond, or which helps not only with water quality but also flooding because it helps kind of slow the river down a little bit. And they were having trouble getting farmers to accept that even at a 75% cost share, And so then they raise it up to 90%. So now the government pays 90% of it, and the farmer would just have to pay 10% of it. But, I mean, you can kind of understand because it's been a difficult time with commodity prices, but there are already some incentives in place for encouraging these environmental steps. Yeah, and I think that's what it's going to take. Okay, well, I want to leave our listeners with a reminder that if they want to learn about what's going on in the number one hog producing state and how that is affecting our water quality, we should all follow your stories. Would be wonderful. (laughs) Yes, I will provide a link to you. I'm really glad to know also that the Gazette is employee owned. That's the way a good, strong news market should be, in my opinion. 
Okay, in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank my guest, Ms. Erin Jordan. She's an investigative multimedia journalist at the Gazette based in Cedar Rapids. She is looking at water quality, especially as it relates to these recent storms and how the manure pits are holding out or not. And we need to protect our water. So thank you for doing that, Erin. Well, it's truly my pleasure to be talking with you today, Melinda. Thank you so much.